Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Encanto, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. disclaimer this is not an official disney podcast but all of these films are available to stream now on disney plus so come on watch along with us and let's learn together i'm film journalist ben travis and while i'm close pals with the magical madrigals i'm not your disneyversity lecturer no this week i'm a lost lonely orphan scrabbling around in the dirt looking for hidden pirate treasure as we watch through 60 films and counting Yes, we are going to say 60 going forward for a full rundown of the weird numbering of Walt Disney Animation Studios films. See our previous episode. Helping me find the whacking great diamond of Disney knowledge in the dark caves of despair is my very own rescuer, a dedicated adventurer who will stop at nothing to aid a pal in need through to the very end of his quest. I am, as ever, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Hey, Sam. Hey, Ben. What was that? <laughs> I don't know, I just thought I'd mix it up. I'm always like, hey, Sam, how are you? But I just thought I'd do something hey, a little bit different. Hey, Sam, Fonzie style. <laughs> hey. Yeah, the Disneyversity boy is back in town. How are you doing? I'm all right. Feeling kind of festive, kind of edging myself into that festive spirit. Yes, yeah, same. This is going to be our last regular episode that comes out before Christmas. So what are you watching at the moment that's getting you in the Christmas spirit? Are you hopping on Klaus? I know everyone loves Klaus's animated festive goodness. Klaus is fantastic. Yeah, the, the Netflix animated movie. Check that out. Um, I haven't watched that yet this year. Maybe I will. I watched the new Aardman short, Robin Robin, on Netflix. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. That looks like the cutest thing in the world. Very, very good, wholesome and fuzzy and cuddly. I also watched <laughs> on the complete opposite end of the animated Christmas movie spectrum, or rather holiday movie spectrum, was Adam Sandler's Hanukkah Adventure, Eight Crazy Nights from the early 2000s. Absolute (laughs) trash movie. (laughs) Absolute dog dirt entertainment that horrendous. In a good way? In like a good Adam Sandler dog dirt entertainment way? No. No. (laughs) No. no. Um, So check that out if you want. Holiday horrendousness. And um, I have got lined up a very creepy-looking Japanese stop-motion movie called The Nutcracker Fantasy, based on the Tchaikovsky Ballet. So that's my next slice of animated Christmas entertainment that I'm hoping to enjoy. I wonder if Tchaikovsky was writing all of these uh, classical music pieces and thinking, one day loads of people are going to make animated movies that correspond to my sweets. thought you meant sweets as in, like, candy. Because I was thinking, oh, Sugar Plum Fairy, that's kind of a sweet, and... (laughs) Just thinking of Sleeping Beauty being a Tchaikovsky joint. Yeah, obviously we'll get a bit of um, Nutcracker as well in Fantasia. Yes, and that's yeah, it. of course. <laughs> that's all I know about Tchaikovsky. And as I mentioned before, at the start of this episode, I said 60 Disney animated movies because Encanto is now out. And obviously we're not going to do a full Encanto rundown. We are going to save that until 
probably a long way down the line when we get to Encanto in the running order, but we are going to talk a little bit about Encanto at another point in time. But for now, Sam, you've seen Encanto, I've seen Encanto. Any brief thoughts on that one? I thought it was really good. It was refreshing in some ways with regards to the the recent slew of Disney stuff. It was doing a few things quite differently. It's another great musical. And by the way, one of the best years for movie musicals of all time. Between West Side Story, In the Heights, Annette, it's just been non-stop spectacular uh, musical movies oh i know it's been absolute bangers non-stop have you seen tick tick boom yet as tick well? tick boom that's another one yeah oh, exceptional the year of lin-manuel miranda oh my boy and the music he did for encanto i really really like i thought the film was great we'll dig into this more another time but like you i i think it really twisted the recent disney formula in a pretty interesting way that still felt like just a big, colourful adventure that was like big but small at the same time in a really lovely way. And people will be able to check out Encanto over Christmas, I think, because I believe it hits Disney Plus as like a freebie, a full-on Disney Plus freebie on Christmas Eve. It's coming to Disney Plus really quickly, so if you haven't seen it, I would say go and see it at the cinema if you can, because it's lovely seeing these things on the big screen with the big sound, but it's also a nice thing to cosy up with your family with over Christmas, so... But yeah, we will be talking about Encanto properly in another way. We'll explain more at the end of the show. But just before we get into everything, Sam, the time has finally come to head into the Dark Age proper. We've had a couple of bangover movies to kick off this era, but now this is where the Dark Age begins, right? It's dark, right? It's dark as hell. This is a dark dark movie. I remember when, when we were like lining this one up, you were like, oh, Rescuers, I don't know anything about this, probably just a fun adventure movie, right? Lots of laughs. No. <laughs> <laughs> that picture on Disney Plus is two mice riding the bird. That's pretty cool. Yeah, this is bleak, so it's dark in that sense, and it's also a very dark visual palette. And we're also kind of in the dark age in the sense that I think this is a much lesser known film for Adair's audiences, a more forgotten film than something like Robin Hood or Winnie the Pooh or The Aristocats, right? Yeah, this is one that I knew nothing about. We're heading into a little run of films now. I'm more aware of The Fox and the Hound, but generally this next run of films are things that I haven't seen, don't really have any knowledge of. Um, So it was nice coming to The Rescuers totally fresh, even if, as you say, we are heading into some pretty bleak territory at points with this one. But that is enough from us, we're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. So this time, after noodling around in the Hundred Acre Wood in the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, we're signing up to the Rescue Aid Society and heading down to the Devil's Bayou for mystery, fun and intrigue in 1977's The Rescuers. So going into this one, I had seen the picture on Disney Plus of the two mice riding a bird. Other than that, I knew nothing about this. I hope maybe our listeners have had a chance to watch it uh, before listening to this, but in case they haven't, in case, like me, a couple of hours ago, they knew nothing about The Rescuers, Sam, give us a little bit of plot. Tell us what this one is about. A little orphan girl named Penny has been kidnapped by the villainous Madame Medusa to help her retrieve the valuable Devil's Eye Diamond from a big, wet cave. Bernard and Bianca are two mice from the Mice Ran 
International Rescue Aid Society who must travel from New York City to the swamps of Louisiana to save her, and with the help of some other animal friends, they are victorious and Penny finds a loving new home. Oh, so yeah, there's a, it's kind of a bleak one, but there's a happy ending, spoiler alert. Okay, so this comes out in 1977, which was the same year that The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh came out. We talked about that in the last episode, and how it was basically like a B-side to a double bill feature hooked onto some other live-action Disney film. The Littlest Horse Thieves. <laughs> the Littlest Horse Thieves, lest we forget. <laughs> so that was kind of a small release for Disney. Was this the like main attraction for the year in terms of Disney animated features of 1977? Yes, this was the big one. Pooh was kind of an afterthought, or at least the, the finished version of that film was, was kind of an afterthought in a way, but this was not just their big movie of 1977, but it was quite an important movie in the process of the studio evolving beyond the Walt Disney era and, and beyond the nine old men as the core creative team. They were about to retire. So one of the most important things about this movie was that it was positioning the next generation of Disney animators to take over. So it's quite a big investment in a few senses. This was the real test for these artists who've been trained and given kind of smaller roles on the previous features and trying to put them in the position where they can take over and start running things in the future. Right, so any names that we should be aware of in in this film and then moving forward through the next set of Disney films? So in terms of people who are going to come up a lot, we've got uh, Ron Clements is on this movie who would go on to direct movies like The Little Mermaid and Aladdin. And we've got Glenn Keane, who would be one of the most important animators of the Disney Renaissance, who animated characters like Ariel and The Beast. But then we've also got on this movie three guys called Gary Goldman, John Pomeroy, and Don Bluth, who we've mentioned before. So this is the first movie on which Don Bluth was a directing animator. So an animator who's not just working on characters, he's, he's directing and arranging scenes and guiding other people. Different from the director on the movie, but kind of a, a an intermediary role between director and animator. And after this movie, during the production of The Fox and the Hound, these three guys would lead an exodus of the top young talent from the Disney studio, and they would found Don Bluth Studios and become Disney's main competitor in the 1980s. So even though he doesn't work in a major capacity on many Disney films, Don Bluth is one of the most significant figures in Disney history of this period. Right, we have a betrayal coming up. Et to Don Bluth... Yeah, too. In terms, of, while we're talking about personnel, then let's talk about who is Art Stevens. He is the third director of this film, which is directed by uh, Willie Ritherman, who has been banging around for a little while. John Lounsbury, who is the other director on Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Uh, but yeah, there's a third name in here, Art Stevens. Who is this guy? Yeah, so Art Stevens wasn't one of like the new guards with Don Bluth, but he wasn't a nine old man either. He'd worked on. He was, he was a lesser well-known animator and, and particularly a story artist. I think his contributions as a storyboard guy were a bit more substantial. And he worked on a lot of those 50s and 60s features as well as some of the quite innovative shorts that Ward Kimball was directing around this time, like Toot Whistle, Plunk and Boom, which I nearly just called Tick Tick Boom. <laughs> <laughs> With songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda and Jonathan Larson. Completely different film. Uh, yeah, so he, he was a fairly significant character character kind of ticking along behind the scenes without the plaudits that gets afforded to the nine old men but yeah he worked on this movie it was also the last movie directed by Wooly Ritherman 
This is the end of the Ritherman-dominated era of Disney. It was the last directed by John Lansbury, who actually died during the production. And it's the last credited film for Milt Carl, and the last film that Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston worked on from start to finish as well. So a lot of the nine old men are basically out of commission following the completion of this movie. It's a real changing of the guard moment. Well, yes, yeah, the start of an era of the Dark Age proper, but it's the end of an era for all of these people that we've been talking about on the podcast for many episodes now. That's uh, that's really interesting. Well, something that you said before was that this film is maybe less well-remembered, less well-known, and it actually is based on some source material that, to me, I also knew nothing about, that maybe itself is, is less remembered or less well-known. But the way that it's phrased in the opening credits was really interesting to me. So this doesn't say that it's inspired by the stories by Marjorie Sharp or that it's based on those stories. It says it's suggested by the rescuers and Miss Bianca by Marjorie Sharp. How, how does that work? This film is suggested by the existence of a book? So Marjorie Sharp wrote a quite substantial series of books called The Rescuers starring the characters Bernard and Bianca going around the world saving kids and sometimes saving adults as well actually weirdly enough in the books are they mice in the books yeah they are mice yeah they okay. are mice um and there's there's a lot of these books there's like 12 or so of them and i think she continued writing them after this movie came out as well but walt bought walt disney by the way he's back <laughs> what oh yeah, walt's, walt's frozen heads <laughs> orchestrating the production of this movie no in 1962 walt bought the rights to the early part of this series of books and started to develop a story primarily based on the first one, which is about rescuing a poet, so an adult man, from a totalitarian government in what is implied to be like Siberia in the USSR. Okay. What? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it's a story, it's a book, and it would have been a movie quite rooted in the contemporary politics of the Cold War. And Walt, no stranger himself to commie bashing, was still not a fan of making this very implicitly anti-Soviet Union film. He didn't want to bring politics into his movies. Why do you have to bring politics into things? Why why do movies have to be political? Just keep politics out of it. That's That was Walt's attitude. Oh no, I'm really glad Walt Disney doesn't exist in the era of Twitter. That would have been pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, so that movie was going to be based fairly closely on the first Rescuers book. That project was shelved. Eventually in the 70s, they realised they still had the rights to these things. They wanted a story to test the talent of this young team who were known as the B-team. And it was originally going to be completely produced by people like Don Bluth. Uh, while the Nine Old Men, or the Air Team, worked on a very different movie called Scruffy, which was going to be about monkeys fighting the Nazis. Oh, what? What happened to Scruffy? Why didn't we get that? Um, again, I guess maybe too political. They didn't want to make a, a Nazi movie, even though it's the 70s and the Nazis by this point are fairly like, we can vilify the Nazis, that's I okay. Think that's, that's safe. Fine. But yeah, they put Scruffy on the shelf, put all the nine old men on this story, and it went through a few different variations, which took elements from different books in the in the Sharp series. We'll talk about a bit more about a couple of them in Discarded. But the film that we have is not really directly based on any of them, so I think that's why it's suggested rather than based on. I see, I see. So they, it was a remix. This is yeah, it's Disney a mashup. and Willy Ritherman with the remix slash mashup. It's that DJ Khaled metaphor again. DJ Wooly. 
<laughs> That's always so funny. <laughs> that always knocks me out. DJ Khaled, Disney metaphors. <laughs> I've got to keep this going. I love it. Anyway, uh, shall we get stuck into the main discussion of the film? Shall we uh, join up with the Rescue Aid Society and go on a mission of our very own? Yes, please. I think one of the ways that you can tell we're in a new, different era of Disney with the Rescuers is that it begins in a way that I don't believe any other Disney film has so far, at least not in the animated sense. So even though this is based on some source material, we don't have a book, we don't go into the book, we have a cold open. We have the Buena Vista logo, but then the film just begins. We have like a pre-title sequence, basically. It immediately establishes this darker era of Disney. It has a darker visual quality right from the off. We see this spooky crashed steamboat, which felt maybe quite a specific image, because when I see those steamboats, right, I think of Steamboat Willie, and I think of the oldie-timey boats at Disneyland. Do you think that was like an intentional thing of like, here we go, oh, oldie-timey Disney has crashed, we're in the new dark era now, yo. Oh, I like that, and it's mice as well involved. Yes. Uh, The rescuers themselves are kind of like a modern, darker, less cartoony version of Mickey Mouse, maybe. The gritty reboot, here it is. Yeah, do you think that's a thing? Uh, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but... I think that's a thing. It's a bit like, you know, in, in, the, in the movies nowadays, the opening Walt Disney Animation Studios' ident is Mickey Mouse on the uh, steamboat. It's a bit like if they pulled away from that and then the boat crashed and Mickey drowned. <laughs> yeah, immediately this film feels dark, right? Because you see that crashed boat and you see this little girl escaping the shipwreck She drops this little handwritten note into a bottle, basically screaming for help. Everything looks really dark and moody. There's this, like, really weird purple background. Immediately, you get the sense of a darker visual palette for Disney, which is something I know you teed up for this set of films. Yeah, and that's something that would carry on through the rest of the Dark Age and through a lot of the other movies that were being produced by other animation studios, especially in the 1980s, that the, the palette just got dark, and I guess... I don't think there's any kind of like technological reason behind that. I think it's just what was in vogue. I think it's just what was what was kind of cool and happening at the time. But um, yeah, it, it, these things are very bleak, this kind of title montage with these kind of warped dark colour palettes with these bright purples and oranges cutting through the darkness in this slightly surreal, um, psychedelic way. And the song is kind of like melodramatic in a way that we haven't really heard from Disney it's reminiscent of like a James Bond title song almost yes I said exactly the same thing in my notes it sounds sort of like a a Bond theme it has these big like brassy sounds but then these swirling strings in there uh, with yeah these really bleak lyrics of like who will rescue me (laughs) Penny uh, the, the little girl here who is an orphan who has been sort of kidnapped from the orphanage after not having anybody to to look after her and not being picked at the orphanage which is such a sad idea anyway and then being forced to look for this diamond by these horrible villainous people the whole thing is just yeah this is a pretty sad story but aside from all of that, did this opening remind you of the opening to the movie Mamma Mia at all? 
uh, well, I, what in a visual sense because it's like a starlit night yeah. and a letter being sent asking for help. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Someone on a boat. I can't uh-huh. remember is she on the boat at the well, start it's, of Mamma Mia. It's dark. It's kind of. I think she's on like a dock. Maybe it's yeah. yeah it's the same as Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia stole the idea from the rescuers. <laughs> that, that's what I'm suggesting. That's what I'm alleging. You're saying it was suggested by. <laughs> yeah, the exactly. It's not based on, not adapted from, just just suggested by. But yeah, I do think this whole opening is feels really cinematic. I think because of the different style of music, because of the darker palette, I did feel drawn into this kind of dark, quite mysterious story. Because I think essentially a lot of this film is a mystery. It's like, oh, why is Penny over here in this kind of steamboat wreck? Why is she no longer at the orphanage? It kind of is raising all these questions. Uh, I felt quite drawn in by that opening. Especially, I think, watching these things through from the start, it is quite immediately jarring in an intriguing way how different this is. Like, even just how contemporary the setting is compared to most of the Disney movies that we've watched so far, it seems to be set in the period in which it was made, which I think it's only really been 101 Dalmatians that that was the case with. A film with which this does share a little bit of DNA, I think. So yeah, it feels, you know, coming after the reasonably happy-go-lucky material of like Robin Hood and Winnie the Pooh and the Aristocats, it's like, oh, okay, this is different now. We're segueing into this different, darker, uh, more modern world. And I think the whole film feels like it's drawing you back into that darker space because... Once we have that little opening bit with Penny in the boats, we then go straight across to New York, and New York feels bright and colourful. It's this multicultural city. It has a, like a quite a zingy visual quality for me, and this is where the story kind of brightens up a bit. We meet our heroes, we meet the wider rescue aid society, but also our central characters, Bernard and Miss Bianca, who I think actually really carry this story in a nice way. I think you need these lovable heroes at the heart of a tale that has this darkness in it. And I really liked Bernard and Bianca. I felt, I thought they were really charming. I loved their relationship. I loved their sort of trust and their bond in each other. Just a couple of lovely characters who I had no real knowledge of before watching this one. Yeah, it's another one of those quite engaging Disney couples that we only seem to find in the movies based on animals, right? Like like Lady and the Tramp, like the Aristocats. Like, oh, this is like a believable couple with a budding romance. I mean, this isn't as much of a love story as the Aristocats or Lady and the Tramp are, but it's still like, yeah, I, I believe these people. I know couples like this. I know people like this. And, and as we've talked about before, the human characters in Disney movies don't seem to be afforded that kind of character development, that kind of personality, that kind of like flirtatious repartee that the animal characters are. And I, I think you're right to say that it's not as overt a romance as maybe Lady and the Tramp and things like that. But I liked that because I thought the romantic elements of it felt earned and felt real but they felt secondary to the fact that these are two adventurous characters who are on a mission and are just going to help each other achieve that goal of finding Penny of working out where she's been taken and and why and help her out and that through doing that together through working together through being a great team they form this bond it's not about them falling in love they just happen to fall in love and you're happy about that because they're lovely characters who work really well together and I think through that we get in a character like Bianca, another quite strong, well-developed female protagonist 
for a Disney movie because she is not just here as a prize to be won. She is not just here as the romantic object for a character like Bernard. She is really the hero. She's the driving force of the pair, right? You know, Bernard, part of his arc is becoming braver and getting his heroic moments. But Bianca is that from the start. So she really reminded me of the Anna de Armas character from the movie No Time to Die. <laughs> well, so she's kind of like naive. This is her first mission, but also she's really capable and she knows what she's doing. Yeah, it's showing that qualities that might be considered more traditionally and typically feminine aren't necessarily at odds with being cool and a badass and brave and heroic that not every heroic female character has to be one that's adopted more traditionally typically masculine qualities like a sarah connor or an ellen ripley or someone like that like that you can be like friendly and happy and and flirtatious and feminine while also being heroic totally and it was frustrating to me sam that even in the mice world even in the rescue aid society miss bianca is like I want to take on this mission, I can do it. And they all go, hmm, you are you are a girl, so there is that. It's like, you're all flipping mice! I don't know if you know this, but you're all mice. That seems to be the real issue here. But I like that when she gets to pick who she wants to go on the mission with, they say, you've got to go with a man. Brr. She's just like, he's nice, so I'm going to pick this janitor guy. But also she's like, I don't need somebody who can do the job for me, because I can do the job, so I'm just going to pick someone who's nice. Yeah, it's probably why she's picked them. She doesn't want some kind of big, like, Chad coming in and overshadowing her on this mission. But now it's a little bit patronising in that scene where they're being given the mission. He's a little bit like, oh, I don't know if you can do that in Miss Bianca kind of thing, but it's he's definitely less patronising than the big, pompous, bloviate and leader of the rescued society. I think that was maybe more his own insecurity of, like, I know mm. I'm not going to be able to do anything helpful on this mission, so it's all going to come down to you, but have you got this? Can you handle this? So I think it's less thinking like, oh, you can't do it, and more just being like, oh, you're bringing me onto this mission where there's going to be a lot of danger, and I know that I'm not going to be very good at <laughs> looking after myself, um, so I hope that you've got this in hand. I read it more like that. But it does have a bit of that, yeah, kind of retrograde adventure movie politics of... Uh, but it, it was also... I just liked their charming bond. I thought they were really sweet yeah. together, and they have these little kind of intimate moments. There's a bit in their flight sequence where they sort of cosy up together, and just those moments felt really beautifully observed and just little grace notes that didn't overshadow the kind of working bonds that they had together. Worth mentioning the voicing here as well, which I think is very good for both of these characters. We've got Eva Gabor, who is back from... Was she in Lady in the... No. What the... Uh, the Aristocats! Yes! She's yes. Duchess and the Aristocats. There's a kind of similar character, but I think she does she does really good work here with Bianca. And Bob Newhart is someone who, a bit like Phil Harris, was quite famous at the time, isn't as famous now, but brought a lot of his existing personality to the role. He was a well-known stand-up comedian who had a really, really successful comedy album, which was like a huge seller, and it was the first comedian to win Album of the Year at the Grammys. So he was, he was a big deal, and Bernard is a very similar character to the one that he portrays on stage. You will know him from the dad elf in Elf. That's him! Oh, yeah. wow! Oh, okay, that's great. I, I did not make that connection at all. Uh, and that's a lovely little festive connection for this pre-Christmas episode. Yeah. There we go. There's the Christmas connection. Yeah. <laughs> Merry Christmas. We've done it. I watch Elf every Christmas with my dad, and it's one of my favourite little Christmas traditions. And well, now you can point when he comes up and say, that's Bernard, and your dad will be like, who? Okay. <laughs> 
it's obviously very familiar having some mice characters at the heart of a Disney film, but in a kind of different way to any other Disney film we've had so far. And I think the music in here plays a similar role, right? Because you expect music in a Disney movie. This is a sort of quasi-musical. There are original songs for this film, and yet they aren't sung by the characters. They're not, like, in-universe songs. They do relate to what's going on in the film, but they also exist kind of outside of it. They're, they're purely there for the audience rather than for the characters. They play an interesting role, and they sound really different to any other sort of Disney songs we've had so far. That opening number, I know we talked about it sounding a bit like a Bond tune. It also sounded weirdly almost like Joni Mitchell-esque to me, that sort of 70s, slightly folky feel. Yeah, I just thought this was an interesting shift, especially after having had a couple of films back-to-back that had the Sherman Brothers doing the songs. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned Joni Mitchell. Actually, the Carpenters were originally approached to write these songs, and that's that's not what we ended up with, but that speaks to the fact that they were looking for a more contemporary feel to the music, and we do get that kind of, like, 70s soft rock flavour to these things. They are actually written by Carol Connors and Anne Robbins, who are the first female songwriting team to work on a Disney movie. This was a a really weird credit to read. Their main credit, uh, other than this, was they did the lyrics for Gonna Fly Now from Rocky, which, it has to be said, (laughs) aren't particularly complex. (laughs) Gonna fly now, getting strong now, getting on now. It's not... not (laughs) <laughs> not the, it's not it's not Stephen Sondheim is what I'm saying, no. right? <laughs> Shout out R.I.P. to the great. But these are more contemporary songs. They feel more attached to the 70s than any other Disney songs have with regards to the particular time which they were made. We'll have contemporary genres of music in there like jazz, but in movies made decades after the heyday of jazz. This feels more rooted in this era. Ben, do you think the songs are good? I think they're really good. I was listening to it. Like, it's quite nice to watch a Disney film with songs that aren't like blinky plonky on mm-hmm. the adventure do be boop sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> now that's Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> yeah, Sondheim could never. They didn't stand out in a sense of, oh, I've got this song still stuck in my head. But whenever they played and the imagery that they were often connected with on the screen... I was like, I actually really love this music. I feel like I would just stick these songs on onto a playlist or on while I'm working or something. I, I really enjoyed them. Do you like them? Are you, are you not a fan? Yeah, I found them a little bit dated and a little bit like saccharine. And it's a, okay, this is a saccharine movie, right? This is a very, it's a dark movie and a, and a upsetting movie in some ways, but it's very sickly sweet in others, especially through the character of, of Penny and, and her vocal characterization, which we'll get to. But a lot of these songs are aligned with that character as well. And a lot of their purpose, especially in uh, the kind of centerpiece musical number, Someone Is Waiting For You, seems to just be to push that sweetness to its absolute limits and and really make sure the audience feels bad for this orphan child who's been kidnapped and forced into a well. It's like, it's, <laughs> they didn't need to go as hard as they did, as the kids say, when it comes to, like, tugging on our heartstrings with this. And it just, yeah, I don't know, it's not quite my thing. But it is interesting that the songs in this, for the first time in a Disney movie, really since Bambi, probably, play this more choric role they are not performed by the characters they sync up with the action in in ways off a commentary on what's happening and a window into the characters psyches but not directly 
Uh, so it's that is of note, I think. Like the Greek chorus of Mamma Mia, suggested by <laughs> the rescuers. Yeah, there we go. We're right back in there. <laughs> yeah, and I think that the Bambi connection's interesting as well. If we can get into, if we're talking about the music, I think we should talk about this Someone Is Waiting For You sequence a bit more. It's It's a little bit later in the movie, but... There is another connection to Bambi in this sequence because it takes animation from Bambi. It's another classic Wooly Ritherman mashup. He's um, borrowing <laughs> animation of the animal characters from Bambi and repurposing it, plonking these like deer and birds from that movie into the, the desolate swamp environment of the rescuers as Penny gazes out at the vista of the swamp from her prison on the ship. So I think, okay, we are invoking Bambi through the way that these songs are being utilised. We're invoking Bambi through the copy and paste animation jobs here. What's the connection? If we're trying to, you know, I'm trying to be more generous, like it were in Winnie the Pooh with Wooly Ritherman's remixing. What's what's the connection between Bambi? What's being evoked here? They're not just stealing these deer. Why are they doing it? Well, for one, there is a parent and baby deer in a shot of this film that I was like... Is that Bambi? Is that meant to be Bambi? But it happens in this song where you have this orphan character and you see in the animal kingdom, she's kind of in this wild environment and she's looking out at the animals and they all have a parent figure and she doesn't and she's understandably quite upset about that, I would say. Right, and it's tapping into our knowledge as the audience uh, for a lot of viewers of that classic parent-child relationship from Bambi and obviously that classic parent-child separation from Bambi. But I also think that the shot in this movie of the deer contrasted not against the beautiful Tyrus Wong forest scenes of Bambi, but against this like horrible swamp with its kind of decapitated trees and the whole general dark atmosphere of this movie in general it's like that she's reaching out and trying to take solace in like the beauty of nature shining through the swamp environment and it's evoking our memories of bambi in that way and it feels to me like you know a lot of these disney movies are about the relationship between humans and the natural world and bambi is about how humans can destroy the natural world i feel like this is a movie about humans and nature working in tandem or penny having this connection to the animals through which she finds her salvation right she is more in tune with nature with animals than any other human character in a disney movie so far as evidenced by the fact that this is one of very few disney movies in which humans can just talk to animals without any explanation behind it you know like so ariel talks to the fish in the little mermaid but she's a mermaid so right okay fine iago the parrot talks in aladdin but he's a parrot we suspend our belief a little bit there parrots can kind of talk but here penny and only penny can straight up just converse with the mice and with rufus the beautiful cat and yeah, if, if, I think a, a lot about this sequence in particular, but also that character places her in a dialogue with nature, with this like Arcadia, this paradise that nature offers that exists away and apart from human vice and evil. Does that make sense as an analysis? That's that's my essay about the <laughs> No, that is that's really interesting. And as you say, like she's the only one who can talk to the mice. I love that moment at the end where uh, she's like, "Yeah, mice talk. You know, you just have to." talk to them and the mice will talk to you sort of thing uh, but it has that very like childlike sense of logic to it of like mm. well none of you adults have tried talking to a mouse so no wonder you haven't had any conversations with them that felt like a uh, uh, it's, it's partly her connection to them as a character who has 
basically nothing and if you think of the mice being seen as as pests and as being sort of at the bottom of the chain penny is in that place too but i think it also just connects to her status as a child as the child in this story when everyone around her is an adult yeah it's that idea that because children are innocent because they haven't been corrupted by the cynicism of the adult world they are more open to magic and to, I guess, nature and animals in this sense than adults might be. One thing I wanted to mention on that song, what's it called? The Penny's Crying and She's Sad song? Someone is Waiting for You, Academy Award nominated. Right. There's a shot where she's crying over the edge of the boat and we see her reflection in the water and that image of her reflection almost looked like a watercolour. It looked really visually different to the rest of the film. Did that stand out to you? It didn't, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so I will have to go back and have a look. But Yeah, uh, there, there were one or two bits in this, right? To me, it feels like visually it's much less Xeroxy other than the villainous characters. It, it's visually a lot smoother. You have this shot that to me looked like a sort of watercolour where it's Penny's reflection when she's crying into the water. And then right at the beginning as well, it doesn't really carry on through the film, but in the opening sequence, you can really see the texture of the canvas which, again, I don't know really why that was there or then why they stopped using that, but it did stand out to me while I was watching that there were a couple of interesting bits of like visual texture and that it felt a lot smoother visually than a lot of the much more kind of scratchy Xeroxy films that we've just had. Yeah, I mean, that's in, in the opening sequence, that's because that's painted on a canvas. You wouldn't typically animate on a canvas. You would animate on, on paper and like transparent cells. But uh, yeah, the... The animation here is more full and detailed, I think, than we've seen so far in, in what we've been calling the Dark Age in this run of, of post-Walt movies. Really, all the movies Ritherman's been involved in. Maybe part of that's because of the hunger of these new, young animators that have been assigned to it. But yes, the, the thick black Xerox lines are softened in this. They've added grey to the palette of those lines to make, to make them kind of softer and to make the, the characters appear smoother in their movements. But there are cost-cutting measures in some areas. For example, the mice's eyes are the same colour as their fur. They don't have whites in their eyes. And that's like a Hanna-Barbera move. That's like some Flintstone stuff, right? Some cut-rate <laughs> TV animation tactics. And that, specifically, um, is what Don Bluth calls the straw that broke the camel's back. He Ooh. could just not stand the corners that were being cut with regards to these mice's eyes. That was it for him. He's done. Wow. Oh, I, I, that's so weird that it would get him so mad. I like the Roquefort eyes. They're just little kind of blinky, blindy eyes. That's cool. I thought it was cute. Roquefort would totally be a rescuer, by the way. Oh, he would. He'd be the... I imagine he maybe set it up in mm. Paris in whatever year that was supposed to be. What, like the 1910s or something? I could see that. That's the that's the backstory here. Ben, put a pin in that idea because we will be returning to it. What? On. Ooh, yeah, just, maybe I want to something. Just hold on to that. So we've talked about the mice. We've talked about the songs. But we haven't really spoken about... Penny yet particularly or about one of the other characters who majorly stands out here who is the villainous Medusa this just horrible woman who wants a big diamond as a villain she to me felt like the midway point 
between Cruella de Vil and Ursula from The Little Mermaid, just the visual qualities that she has, the sense that she is kind of deliciously evil, but also her, her kind of slightly janky movements felt quite Cruella to me, but she maybe has the more like physical heft of someone like Ursula. But it's interesting because I think that she's actually a pretty good villain through this film. She feels quite scary, she feels quite threatening, but this is not a character that to me at all has entered the cultural lexicon that has become like a thing that's more widely known outside of the rescuers she just exists in this film and no one really knows about her right she's not iconic like Cruella de Vil or Ursula despite their similarities so this was the last character that Milt Carl worked on Milt Carl who's often spoken as as the most technically gifted of the nine old men we highlighted him when we talked about Shere Khan and the Jungle Book which is a spectacular piece of villain animation and the, the way that this story is told is that he wanted to go out with a bang and one of the pieces he was most jealous of from one of the other nine old men was Mark Davis's work on Cruella de Vil so this might be a little bit apocryphal but it has been said that this was his attempt to outdo that and to do his own version of the Cruella character character and she is kind of more extreme than Cruella in a lot of ways visually she's she's freakier than Cruella like her body looks kind of inhuman the way that she moves the way that she walks the way that her arms seem like very floppy and noodly one moment and then very rigid and skeletal the next yeah it is a, a very impressive piece of character animation do you know who she reminded me of in the way that she moved in the sort of weird body shape that she has kind of like the pale man from Pan's Labyrinth you know the the freaky dude with the with the eyes in his hands yeah it's that kind of thing right just well it, it's uncanniness like she is human she looks human but there are elements of her that do not seem human and she is also an awful awful person <laughs> up there with the most despicable actions committed by a disney villain up to this point particularly the way that she treats that character the way that she treats penny and um, the way that she oscillates between a very thin mimicry of genuine motherhood and affection and abject cruelty particularly in the scene where i can't remember if she's taking her makeup off or putting it on in her dressing room i think she's taking it off because it's like her taking off this mask of motherhood as the scene continues and by the time she's got like half a face worth of makeup she's transitioned from trying to kindly entice penny to going along with her plan to just saying why would anyone want a homely little girl like you which is like oh my god man brutal yeah she is nasty and to do that to play those manipulative mind games on on anyone let alone a child let alone an orphan child who doesn't have that parental figure in their life to give them that love it's so it's so awful yeah and, and the fact that it's just purely for personal gain of just wanting this big diamond the whole plot here with penny and medusa and medusa's sort of crew it was to me like halfway between uncut gems and the goonies it was like pirate treasure adventure we got to get the kids to get the treasure in the pirate place uh, but at the same time she just wants this big shiny rock that just seems to have almost this like mystical visual quality when she gets the devil's stone or whatever it's called at the end it kind of affects the whole color palette of the film everything's like covered in these like purpley pinky psychedelic sort of colors and that really reminded me of uncut gems <laughs> in the sense that you often go into the diamond and it's kind of has this captivating magical quality that everyone just wants this thing obviously it's hugely valuable but there's 
almost like a mystical quality to it. It's pure obsession with her, isn't it? She's she's bewitched by it. It's less about having the diamond and more about just this obsessive quest that it drives her to. It's the same thing with Cruella de Vil and her court. It's the same thing with the coyote and the roadrunner. Like, you lose sight of the benefits of actually having this and, and what would be a rational amount of effort to expound on this <laughs> project. And it's just like, nope, it's happening. I need the diamond. I'll do literally anything that needs to be done. But I will say for Medusa, one, and maybe one reason why she hasn't become iconic in that way, one of the most misogynistic female Disney villains, I would say, misogynistic depictions. We've talked a bit about characters like Cruella de Vil, and I think we've mentioned it applies to a character like Ursula as well, whereby there are certain qualities in a woman which are associated with villainy in Disney films, and the women who are active and loud and powerful and flamboyant are also the women you should avoid because they are evil and they are going to uh, trap you and hurt you. And Medusa has all of that, but... I think goes too far in, in her cruelty and she's not as fun to watch and be around as Cruella or Ursula because she's just too grotesque. And I think, again, to go back to that makeup scene, that is a misogynistic trope that runs throughout a lot of fiction, right? It goes all the way back to, like, Jonathan Swift's grotesque poem, The Lady's Dressing Room, where he describes a woman taking off her makeup in like very viscerally disgusting terms and i think this association with with makeup and trying to to cover oneself up and hide one's true self and associating that with duplicity is like a a misogynistic strain of thought and i think also this character i think not coincidentally was based on milt carl's soon-to-be ex-wife so i think that might be where that comes from oh milt carl that's a bad look that's not cool man just one last thing on Medusa. Uh, she reminded me Corella as well because she is an absolutely insane driver. She has that great line where she goes, out of my way, you road hog. <laughs> Which, I love that as a line. But she is just all over the place on the road. I'm happy not to live in a world where Medusa might be on the roads near me. Yeah, she drives like Corella. She also drives like Dom Toretto from The Fast and the Furious. She does his <laughs> signature move where she revs up and, and flies the car onto its hind wheels and drives off like that i don't know if that has a name the the toretto i call it (laughs) she lives her life a quarter mile at a time sam as we all should but okay i think we've waited long enough we need to talk about some of the characters some of the many characters in this film who could be considered to be disney versity legends baby okay so i think there for me there are two key candidates here i think you maybe have more in mind But let's start with our boy Orville. I loved Orville so much. He's an albatross who flies, and he's kind of great at it, and also not very good at it at the same time. He has a cool little scarf, he has a little hat, he has fun goggles. He's just a good vibe. I loved Orville. Yeah, excellent. Just a a friendly, helpful character, but a bit of a screw-up, a bit goofy, apparently based on... I can't remember what bird it was going to be. It was going to be a different bird, and then the animators saw some nature documentary footage of an albatross landing and looking like an absolute goof, and they just (laughs) thought, all right, okay, no, he's going to be an albatross. We need need that in there. Oh, I love that he qualifies that as well. They're like, oh, God, are you okay? And he's like, that's one of my better landings, bud. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love the guy. He's great. He's just really bad at like takeoffs as well. When he's when he's running to do his takeoff, he gets out of breath. His little feet are just going flap 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 flap. Yeah, he's just a good egg. I tell you what, if you like Orville, you are gonna love certain parts of of the Rescuers Down Under. 
I'm just going yeah. to put that in there. <laughs> but I think we also have to talk about Evan Rude. We do need to talk about Evan Rude. Uh, I mean, where do we even start with this guy? I'm going to leave that to you. So Evan Rude is like a little dragonfly who lives in the <laughs> swamp and he's got he's got a mustache for some reason. He's got a blue turtleneck. He wears a turtleneck sweater for reasons that cannot be described. He doesn't speak. He just goes like... (laughs) And he tries really, really hard in everything he does. (laughs) And he just, like, weirdly becomes quite a big part of the film at the end where he's being chased by bats. And I don't quite know how that connected to anything else. But he was just a joy whenever he was on screen. It's clearly one of those things like like Napoleon and Lafayette in The Aristocats where it's like, all right, we've got this character. He's very functional. He's here to serve a purpose from getting the rescuers from point A to point B by, to be clear, taking a little leaf in his hands and then batting his wings in the river like a speedboat engine and flying them <laughs> through the water like that. That's his job. That's what he does. But clearly, either test audiences or the animators or whoever were like, no, no, we need more Evan Rude. Not enough Evan Rude in this movie. We'll give him this little bat scene. And then at the end, he joins the crew. He joins the rescuers. He flies implicitly from Louisiana to New York to deliver a message about someone else who's in trouble. And then we see him at the end going off into the distance with our pals Bernard and Bianca. He's core crew now. I know, like that little setup we get at the end of this film where it's like our central group of four is uh, Bianca and Bernard, who we already love, plus Orville, who is just the best, and Evan Rude, who is just an immediate boost to any situation. I was like, this quartet is everything. I need all the adventures with these four together. And I think Evan Rude's got that quality that we love in a Disney character, which I think applies to Bill the Lizard and Roquefort the Mouse in particular, where he does just try really hard without any complaints and he just he has a job to do and he's just gonna do it and he's he's you know it's not always easy but Evan Rude's <laughs> gonna get the job done. He's just an absolute little odd bod. He just made me smile every time he was there. And and when he manages to escape the bats, when he manages to go and see all the other animals who are in the house for some reason, anyway, he gets there just in the nick of time. And, and he's like basically all conked out. They say he's plum tuckered out. And then they give him a little <laughs> drop of this like explosive booze and it brings him back to life. <laughs> Well, see, that brings us to Luke, the drunken muskrat, who is another (laughs) classic Disney drunk, joins Uncle Waldo in the pantheon of classic Disney drunks. Yeah, they're down the boozer together. That's a separate list that I need to make, actually. Bacchus and his drunk little donkey from Fantasia would fit that bill, too. Okay, I'll I'll work on list of Disney drunks. Luke is cool guy and his and his wife and all of their friends. There's a little owl who's who's a preacher. He's a little owl in like his little dog collar. He's cool. With all these characters, I think they hit you in a way that they didn't hit me. I wasn't as obsessed with these guys, okay. but I was mainly confused as to why they were so small. They're like all these different animals, but they're basically all mouse sized. I think. Oh yeah, there's like a turtle and an owl are kind of the same size as the mice. Ah, don't think about it. <laughs> but I, I like this gang. This felt very Pixar esque to me. 
Like a lot of those Pixar movies have, you know, like Cars or I guess Toy Story, Bugs Life is one, uh, Finding Nemo, just these like little squads, these discrete little squads. And like, you know, Toy Story 3 has like four different little squads in that movie of like little supporting characters who have their own little community that the main characters land in and have to figure out how to relate to them. I don't know, that's quite a Pixar-y uh, convention. But I think if we're doing Disney vs. Legends characters, We've got to hit Rufus as well. Rufus the cat. Ah, see, again, I think this is a character that hit you in a way that he didn't hit me. But come on, show your working. Give me your reasons. (laughs) Okay, so first of all, there's the fact that our mutual friend Emma Lang, who also got a shout out on the last episode, has a very lovely cat called Rufus. So I'm kind of thinking about our Rufus the cat when (laughs) we're engaging with this Rufus the cat. Rufus the cat is so sweet. He is like Penny's mentor slash best friend slash like grandfather figure at the orphanage. And this is the first scene where we see that she's able to talk with the animals. And he's very wise and he's just so kind. And he's got lots of just... So we get this flashback sequence. Rufus is telling the rescuers the last time he saw Penny. And we get this really, really long and detailed flashback sequence where Penny's not happy because someone else got adopted instead of her. And she's like... Oh, the little redhead girl got adopted because she's prettier than me. And Rufus is like, Sam, everyone got adopted. Literally everyone. (laughs) She's in that place on her own. That would absolutely screw you up. So she's like, oh, she's prettier than me. And and Rufus is like, oh, no, she couldn't be. I'll bet my whiskers on it. He's just got this really sweet voice. Oh, I just loved him. And it's like she's cuddling up with him. And I'd like to give Rufus a little cuddle. But it goes on for so long. There's a, there's a whole sequence after all of like the important exposition has been delivered, where for a couple of minutes she's just giving them biscuits. <laughs> it's like, oh, by the way, Rufus, I got some biscuits for you. He's like, oh, catnip snaps. <laughs> Why? Why is that there? But I'm not complaining because we get to spend more time with Rufus. Ah, uh, I wish I loved Rufus as much as you do. Okay, so not all of the Disney versity legends are cute. But I think he's no. missing the cute factor. Even though Uncle Waldo is also just like a weird, slightly old freak, Rufus maybe fits that bill. For me, I think, because we've generally said we're going to try and pick one per film, but already Orville and Evan Rude are like neck and neck for me, I would vote both of those in the Disney Versity Legends canon, but the rest are just orbiting. They're on the periphery. I thought you might bring up the uh, the two crocodiles or the alligators, whichever oh, they were supposed yeah. to be. And um, Brutus and Nero, they play the organ. They do. I, I really like that sequence. I thought it was really fun as like a different sort of action sequence and that the mice are hiding in the tubes of the organ and so they, the alligators slash crocodiles are playing the organ so the mice fly up out the top. You get the Jurassic Park shot where the mice are hiding in the tubes of the organ and there's that little kind of the air basically the little window and the eye of the alligator sort of looks right up close and that's exactly like the t-rex's eye framed in the window of the jeep in jurassic park yeah that that was a really well conceived and executed action sequence that would have been absolutely tedious if this was like the 1950s and 60s and we're just getting like (laughs) antics thrown in there willy-nilly but this was like okay we need a little bit of a comedy beat and it's a smart way of doing it that isn't just the alligators chase the mice around the room for 10 minutes and one of them gets hit in the head with a broom you know it's something a bit different but disney versity legends (laughs) i accept your proposition um orville and evan rude are in there 
And I don't know, if, if Rufus can't make it at Disney Versity Legends, there's always room for him round mine. We'll get a couple of catnip snaps and we'll have a cuddle on the settee. That sounds so wholesome. So before we wrap up, I just want to talk about the ending of this film, the action finale, and the maybe slightly different tone that this whole film takes on, which is usually these films do end with a bit of a chase sequence, but this one maybe feels a bit more amped up. You have the sort of weird swamp-mobile contraption, the chase around the swamp, and like I said earlier on, if there was a film that this reminded me of, uh, which obviously this came out before that film, but it would be The Goonies. It has that like proper action-adventure movie feel. Maybe for the first time this overtly in the Disney canon, I would say. like A lot of the other ones are like romances or different sorts of films that then end with a bit of action, but this one, to me, the whole way through, it was like a big adventure quest movie. And I was wondering about that as a slightly different flavour for Disney and when this film is coming out. So this comes out in 1977. And when we get to this era of cinema, 1975 is Jaws, and Jaws changes everything. 1977 is the year of Star Wars, and I just wonder if that's part of this kind of changing tone of the film industry overall, and how Disney's films fit into that, that we have the most kind of adventure-filled Disney film yet. Yeah, and I I think the other one, I mean, it's been ticking around in the background, but I think James Bond is kind of an influence on this as well. We talked about that with regards to the the music at the start, but this swamp chase scene with the swamp mobile at the end, genuinely thrilling, wouldn't be out of place in something like Live and Let Die. They're like an international mice spy agency (laughs) yeah i mean the the whole thing just has more of a pulse to it than the last crop of of disney movies it just feels more kind of vivid all the way through that might not be the right word but it's it's got this like consistent excitement and sequences of horror as well like in the well well cave i never know what i call it it's like a (laughs) penguins in the hole she's trying to get the diamond the the water comes rushing in the two mice crawl around inside a human skull to get a diamond out that's hardcore that's metal for disney they crack it open with a sword (laughs) metal as hell yeah so i think it it is taking it in that more thrillery actiony espionagey direction as well The, the poster for this just the tagline was just mystery fun intrigue you know none of those things you would really think about with regards to any Disney film that we've looked at so far. Yeah, and I think you still see that in the patterns of Disney films today. We've had recently, well, if you think of Encanto, is in some ways it's twisting the formula, but it is a Disney musical. But before that, we had Raya and the Last Dragon, which was just like an adventure action-packed quest movie that it felt like where the songs would normally be they put fight sequences instead it had a different flavor you think of something like big hero 6 as well which in some ways is a very straight up disney animated movie but also is a lot more action-packed than maybe other disney films that were coming out around that time they seem to oscillate between the sort of new princessy stuff like your your frozens and your moanas but then your big hero sixes and your wreck it ralphs and and raya and the last dragon as well feels like maybe you could trace that lineage back to the rescuers yeah i mean that is kind of where animation goes in the 1980s we start to see more features being released from studios other than disney obviously starting with don bluth and we'll get disney movies like the black cauldron as well and that does kind of follow the slightly more 
action focused and 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 thrills focused tone of this film uh, but you know i think yeah you could equally attribute that to what else is happening in the film industry at this time but i think the rescuers is, is influential and significant in ways that perhaps obscured by how forgotten it is by today's audiences. I think it's significant that, as I mentioned before, we get our iconic quartet, we get Bernard, we get Bianca, we get our boy Orville, we get our other boy Evan Rude, as this little quartet heading off on a second adventure. We get a bit of sequel bait at the end, and when they all fly off together into that beautiful orange sunset, which again, it just adds this whole cinematic flair to this one for me that maybe some of the other Disney films don't have, I am ready to see that adventure. And I know we have another Rescuers adventure coming up, so I cannot wait to see where this one goes. That brings us to the section of the show we call Discarded, where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the unusual bits that they usually wisely left out. Now, Sam, we've discussed how The Rescuers was suggested by the works of Marjorie Sharp, and this is already quite dark in parts, but does it go even darker in her stories? What didn't make it to the screen? It definitely goes to some slightly weirder places. I guess the first thing to mention, which I kind of alluded to earlier, is that in the books, they're not the Rescue Aid Society. They're the Mouse Prisoners Aid Society, and their goal is to help prisoners of all sorts and, and just cheer them up, not necessarily save them, but just give them a good time, which is, um, you know, we assume that most of these are like political prisoners uh, unjustly convicted, but I don't know how they choose their candidates for prison aid. But the movie is predominantly based as much as it is on any of them on the second rescuers book which was just called Miss Bianca and in this Bianca has to save an orphan from a diamond obsessed duchess the difference being that the Duchess has an army of clockwork robots. Oh, that would have been pretty cool. That would have felt like it fit in with the whole like 70s, 80s, slightly blockbustery. If this uh, yeah horrible villain is just like, now my robot army is unleashed. And then it ends with a confrontation where Bernard has to throw a dagger at her henchman. And um, I couldn't figure out, you know, I haven't read the book. Spoilers, guys. I don't read all of these books. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't actually sit and read them all. I tend to read the summaries on Wikipedia and wherever else I can find them. So I can't figure out if Bernard murders a man, but he definitely <laughs> throws a dagger at him. He has blood on his tiny, tiny paws. Yeah, but this was actually the third iteration of, of the plot for this movie. The first being the Norwegian prisoner in Siberia thing that I mentioned earlier, the, the imprisoned poet. Um, but there was an in-between one that uh, the team worked on before it became this swamp-based story rooted in the second book. And that was going to be based on the sixth book, Miss Bianca in the Arctic, in which they have to rescue the same poet from the first book, but now he's in the Arctic. So this guy is just getting imprisoned all over the place. This version of the movie would get rid of the poet character. This is getting confusing. And instead, they would have to rescue a polar bear named Louis voiced by Louis Prima, who voiced King Louis in The Jungle Book. Right. Was that part of just like, let's get this guy back in a Disney movie. What else can we do? Let's make him a polar bear this time. Exactly. It was going to be a vehicle for him. Unfortunately, I believe Louis Prima went into a coma while that was in pre-production, and that's part of the reason why they the shifted it away from him. And Louis the Bear was going to be kidnapped by an evil penguin who, and this is a quote from the writer Fred Lucky, wanted to make him perform like a freak. 
whoa okay i don't know what that means that brings to mind all sorts of weird possibilities and the reason why they moved away from this story in general and especially the arctic setting was that they didn't think they could work with very sparse white backgrounds that that would be quite a boring thing to paint and, and to animate against uh which by the way movie that came out the other week on netflix an animated film about Mount Everest called Summit of the Gods absolutely spectacular snow covered animated backgrounds so it can be done but they didn't think it could be done so that was another version based on another Marjorie Sharp book and we nearly got that instead of what we ended up with I quite like the bayou swampy setting for this one. I think it's really evocative. It has like a spooky feel. It adds to the sort of dark tone of the story. It feels like a good setting for an adventure. Um, And obviously we'll head back to the bayou quite a bit further down the line when we get to uh, the princess and the frog. That's what I think of when I think of bayou-based Disney tales. So a couple of other things that were just cut out of this movie of the Madame Medusa version of the film. Um, the villain was originally literally going to be Cruella de Vil. Whoa, they would have like crossed the streams and brought her into this story. Yeah, it was going to be like effectively a sequel. Like This is what happened to this character after 101 Dalmatians. She got into diamonds instead of fur and started kidnapping children instead of dogs. I mean, that all fits, to be honest. It makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> The thought that they didn't want to kind of do a sequel to another movie, which is slightly ironic given that this movie would have a sequel and every movie would have a sequel eventually. Uh, another character, and my lord, this is the one that is a real loss, was I can't even say it without breaking down how much I need to see this. What's going on? What is this? So the, the swamp critters, okay, yeah. well, there was going to be another character who was going to be their leader and that character was going to be a singing frog voiced by <gasps> Phil Harris. No! Oh my god, he would have been back. He would have been a frog, possibly wearing tiny clothes, maybe riding a bicycle. That's everything you love! Exactly, exactly. It would have been the fourth part in the the Phil Harris quadrilogy. My word, what he would have done with that character, (laughs) what that frog would have looked like, we can only imagine. But, okay, the big thing that was cut out of this movie, after it was released, okay? After it was released? Okay. After it was released, was a photograph of a human, real, live-action, nude woman. What? In what context? So when Orville is flying the mice through New York, in one of the windows, visible for like two or three frames, less than a second, is a photograph of a nude human topless woman, like a Playboy model. Some cheeky animator or somebody had had inserted illicitly into a couple of frames of this movie and nobody noticed until it was reissued on VHS in 1999. So this movie was out in the world for like 20 years with a naked woman in it and and, and nobody knew. (laughs) And then they had to recall all 3.4 million copies of The Rescuers to reissue them with the nudity removed. I mean, surely you just hold on to it and think this is going to be worth a fortune one day if I've got the the, the nudity cut (laughs) of Rescuers. I haven't actually checked, but I guess there is a faint possibility that the version they put on Disney Plus was mistakenly the nudity version. I'm sure that would have come to light if it was the case. I'm sure for some people that was the first thing they did when they got Disney Plus but, uh... <laughs> they watched the McClunky cut of Star Wars and then exactly. went straight to the rescuers to see if that was still in there uh, so that's 
discarded. Wow. I didn't <laughs> I did not goods. expect uh, naked women in this one. Donald Duck would have been thrilled. He would have loved that. <laughs> Maybe it was him. Maybe yeah. he put it in there. He's sneaking in to the editing room, just splicing in nudes to all these movies. That's canon as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the reception of this film. What did critics say at the time? Were they on board with this new Disney, with this darker Disney, with this adventurous Disney? Yes. So Variety said it was among the cream of the Disney animated classics. Ooh. And they ascribed that to something which which must have been publicised at the time, the blending of old and new talent. They said that's probably responsible for this film's unique combination of freshness and technical mastery. The LA Times said it was the best feature-length animated film from Disney in a decade or more. The Washington Post said it's one of the most rousing and appealing animated features ever made by the Disney studio. Wow, so like raves pretty much all around. To be honest, I I get it. As we're going to discuss in a minute, I don't want to preempt my own review, but I can see why that was the reaction to this one. So was anyone bashing this or was it just, I mean, usually there's one or two outliers. I couldn't find any, to be honest. People were pretty happy with this one. Raves all around. And the box office reflected that let me tell you is this a big hit this was the highest grossing unadjusted for inflation Mm. animated feature of all time what the rescuers that basically people today don't really remember that well yeah this was the biggest animated feature film which basically means it was the biggest disney film and it held that position for a while it held that position till the mid 80s when don bluth would unseat it with an American tale. Mm. People just love like mice adventures. I guess that's what it is. Yeah, it was it was mice versus mice in, at the American box <laughs> office during this decade. So apparently, one contributing factor to this in America, it's this is something that's been I guess theorised, was that because this came out the same time as Star Wars, this was in cinemas at the same time as Star Wars, and yet it was not overshadowed by that movie. It still managed to make a lot of money, despite the fact that the biggest movie ever is running concurrently. So the theory goes that people were taking their kids to see Star Wars, turning up and finding that Star Wars had sold out, and they went to see The Rescuers instead. (laughs) Which, do you know what I think? Look, it's not Star Wars. What else is? But... If you were taking your kids, they were geared up for some kind of family-friendly but big adventure story. I think this sort of holds a similar space to that, you know? I mean, without actually being in space. I think if you took your family to see The Rescuers because you couldn't get into Star Wars, you would still have a good big adventurous time at the movies. So you think it's not as good as Star Wars? Well, tell that to the nation of France, where this movie (laughs) outgrossed Star Wars. What? At the cinema. And indeed, tell that to the nation of what was then West Germany, where this was the biggest movie of all time. Whoa, no way. So probably glad that they didn't go overly political with this one then. (laughs) Yeah, the monkeys fighting that. Nazis movie probably wouldn't have been as big a hit in West Germany. But this made $48 million on a $7.5 million budget. This was an extraordinary success on its initial release. So the question is, why has this been forgotten? Why has this been relegated to the Disney C-list? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because I think there is some affection for this one. I, I just get the general sense that some people did have this on VHS growing up. But, like, we didn't... I don't know many people personally who did. I think there's just a sense in the ether that The Rescuers is still a thing, but it's definitely not A-list Disney property, which is weird that it was such a huge deal at the time. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? I mean, this is getting into our thoughts on the movie a little bit. 
I think it is deeply flawed. I think I agree with everything that you've praised it for. The pace of the action. Obviously, there's some great characters and stuff in there. But I also think, and we didn't really talk about Penny that much when we were going through the movie, I hate that character. I find that character (laughs) deeply hard to watch. I just, obviously, God bless, it's a real-life little girl, fair play. I cannot stand that voice. It's just too sickly sweet. It's too saccharine. And the movie's just, I, I did allude to this before, trying so hard to make us feel bad for this character, to make us cry or whatever. And it's just bouncing off me. It's just, I just cannot get away with that character. And that's a big part of the movie, you know? She probably has as much dialogue as, as the mice in this. Beyond that, it's dark and unpleasant. Uh, the music is quite dated to me. I'm surprised you like it as much as you do because this, to me, mm. is the most Pinocchio-esque movie that they've made since that film. I would say it's nowhere near as disturbing as Pinocchio. I think it's a dark story and you're basically spending quite a lot of the film with an orphan who's been kidnapped by some villainous people and is crying into a swamp. But weirdly, I mean, it doesn't have anything as like disturbing or uncanny or weird as the Pleasure Island stuff in Pinocchio or the Monstro the Whale sequences or even Honest John, what a disgusting freak he was. All that really just weird stuff in Pinocchio that got under my skin. I don't think this has that to that degree at all. And uh, yeah, I actually really enjoyed this one. I felt like it was kind of more than the sum of its parts because I agree with you that the Penny stuff didn't really grab me. The songs, I really enjoyed the whole tone of it and I'm actually quite excited to re-listen to those, but they're not like earworm tunes. All of the sort of forest critters didn't really like do much for me, but at the same time, I actually loved Bianca and Bernard. I loved just the whole adventurous tone of it really worked for me. I had a lot of fun watching this film. Sometimes I watch these for the podcast and I do enjoy them and I enjoy kind of revisiting them for historical value or but this was one where I was like oh I'm in on this story I want to know what happens next I it didn't drag for me at all compared to something like 101 Dalmatians which I also really liked but whenever it went to the animals in the barn for like five minutes I was like oh okay we're back in the barn again this didn't have any of those segments or sequences that dragged for me and even though Medusa hasn't endured as a Disney villain I thought she was a good Disney villain it all kind of worked together for me as a as a package. This would be a four out of five for me. I I had wow. a really yeah, I had a really good time with it. See, I don't want to seem hypocritical because I'm kind of Doctor Pinocchio over here. <laughs> but this, I don't know. It was just obviously there's moments of levity. There's lots of levity. There's lots of fun characters and and sequences. But what sticks out to me and what I remember when I think of this movie predominantly is the misery of it, right? <laughs> um, and I think in that way it stands out as the movie from the Disney canon that is most reminiscent of the movies Don Bluth would go on to make. You know, he didn't direct this movie. It's hard to get a clear sense of exactly how much influence he had upon its contents and there's some things he was unhappy about with it. But these are Don Bluth's hallmarks, right? If you watch the first, well, most of the movies he made, especially in the 80s and early 90s, it's this constant misery visited upon children. It's these innocent exposed to the horrors of the adult world with these bleak colour palettes and these sappy songs. And maybe it's just because I've endured those movies and you haven't, but that's what it reminded me of. And and those movies have... A lot of people love them and I have a complicated relationship with those films. But um, yeah, it's just... What what I remember when I think of this film is the ceaseless misery and the sappiness. I'm three, I might even be 
as low as two and a half on this. I don't know. Two I just, and a half. I just... Sam, Orville and Evan Rude are going to be deeply disappointed in you. Come on. I, I'll give it a, okay, the, I'll give the half star for Orville and Evan Rude. Yes. We'll call it three. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. The story, the pace, and the animation here, they're better than movies like Robin Hood and Aristocats, right? I think, inarguably. But it's harder to recommend, especially to kids. And I think, if to go back to the question of why hasn't it endured, I think that might be why. I think if, if a kid was like, Dr. Summers, I've, I've got three VHSs here. I've got... <laughs> why are they VHSs? I've got three VHSs here. I've got Robin Hood, the Aristocats, and the Rescuers. Which one should I throw in the bin? I would say the, the Rescuers. Don't watch that, man. It's going to scar you. Watch the fun movies. I think of the movies we've seen so far from this era... I can see why it's the least enduring. Okay then, three stars scraped it by our boys Orville and Evan Rude. But now it is time for the section of the show we call Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. Or is there, Sam? Because as we've discussed, there's not really much of a lasting legacy for the rescuers in the popular culture, at least. Is there in terms of presence in, I don't know, theme parks and other spin-offs and things? So, like, if you're lucky, uh, very occasionally you might see Bernard and Bianca in some of the parks as walk-around characters, but there's no, like, structures, stores, or, like, restaurants or anything that incorporate those characters, to my knowledge. Almost every movie we've looked at so far, even like some of the package features, has some kind of physical presence in those parks, but these don't. Originally, you could get like a, a Medusa, a Penny, an Evan Rude, an Orville, and a Brutus and Nero that went all in, but those things have, have totally become extinct. So basically nothing in the parks. Obviously, this was the first, and for a long time really the only, Disney movie to get an actual Walt Disney Animation Studios sequel. So like Winnie the Pooh, will cover that aspect of its lasting legacy when we get to that movie. I think it's interesting that they chose it to have a sequel, that they chose to spin that off. I wonder if that's because it was so successful, because at the time it was like, what is our biggest movie? Let's make a sequel to that. Oh, is it like Peter Pan? Hell no, it's The Rescuers. That's what the people (laughs) want. I think it's also a premise that lends itself quite well to a sequel. You can just, oh, we'll just give them another kid to rescue. You can make a hundred of those, right? Like James Bond. Just give them another kiss. But We're not going to talk about that too much now because we're going to get to it. The one thing that I can zero in on for this film's lasting legacy, in the 1980s, there was a pitch for a Rescuers TV series. And this was when, like, DuckTales was becoming a big deal. Mm. You know, know, DuckTales, woo-hoo. Yeah, the Donald Duck and the uh, the Nephew Ducks. (laughs) Yeah, the Nephew Ducks. The Nephew Nephew Ducks show. Uh, Uncle Scrooge. Yes, I, in my mind I was thinking Scrooge, and then I was like, am I just thinking of Christmas Carol? No, he is no, Uncle no, Scrooge. No, Uncle Scrooge, DuckTales. So that's like a big action-adventure series starring classic Disney characters, and they wanted another one of those, and the the pitch was The Rescuers. That lends itself, like I say, really well to, to continuing stories with different cases every week. But this idea was rejected because they had already started to work on The Rescuers Down Under, so we're doing a TV show, we're going to get a movie. This idea was retooled, basically swapped around some of the names of some of the characters, introduced a different set of classic Disney faces, and this pitch became Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Do you know Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Ben? I do, because I think when I went to 
Disneyland Paris for the first time when I was like seven years old, one of the photos I got was with Chip and Ordale, possibly both. And they're going to be coming back. There's a, an upcoming film, is it, that has yeah. Andy Samberg and John Mulaney, I think, doing the voices correct. of Chip and Dale. So it's the Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, basically the rescuers. It's two chipmunks who go around the world saving people. And there's mice in that as well. And the supporting characters are all mice. So that grew from the seeds of the idea for a Rescuers TV show. So that's kind of its main lasting legacy outside of the Rescuers Down Under. It's this TV show that didn't happen and became something that did become quite memorable for a lot of fans. But in terms of things that didn't happen, it gets even better, right? So you might know that they rebooted DuckTales a few years ago. And that became really successful. Like, people love, I've never seen it, but I gather that that's a really well-liked show, The New DuckTales. So, one of the guys behind that, I believe it's pronounced Frank Angones, was pitching a spin-off of that show, and he was going to reboot The Rescue Rangers and set it kind of in the world of, of the DuckTales show. And he was going to give a lot more background to the Rescue Rangers operation. So, this was going to be a spin-off of the Rescue Aid Society, it would open with Chip and Dale, who had heard about the legends of the Rescue Aid Society, but it, it seems to have faded. It doesn't seem to exist anymore. So they go and find the last surviving member of the Rescue Aid Society, who's Bernard. Everyone else is, has died or disappeared. We don't even know where no. Bianca is. But Bernard is kind of... This is all on Twitter, by the way. That's why I'm <laughs> getting... This, is, this, this guy tweeted this all out in a thread. Bernard's kind of, like, holed up. And he's the last, he's like very like paranoid because he's the last one and something dark and mysterious has happened to everyone else. And they're like, we've got to start the Rescue Aid Society again. We're Chip and Dale. We're going to do the Rescue Aid Society. Join us, Bernard. And he's like, no. He's like, I'm never, we're never going to do a Rescue Aid Society again. And in particular, I'm not going to do it with chipmunks because chipmunks don't solve problems. They only cause them. So Bernard's really jaded. He's prejudiced against chipmunks for some reason. But eventually he joins up with them and that becomes the gang for the show. And this guy has likened it to Kingsman with Bernard in sort of the common <laughs> firth role, right? But it goes even further back because gradually it was going to be revealed that the Rescue Aid Society has deep roots in Disney history. And apparently there was going to be three parallel stories. There was going to be the modern day story with Chip and Dale. And then you were going to get flashbacks to the 1970s and 80s with Bernard and Bianca. And then you were going to get even more flashbacks to the original Rescue Aid Society in Victorian London, founded by the cast of Basil the Great Mouse Detective. Right. Wow. Oh my God. There we go. Into the rescue verse. It could have happened. What could have been? Who knows? Maybe it could still come to be. And that is it for this week's class. If all goes to plan, our next seminar will be with you between Christmas and New Year, getting totes a moche with the heartbreaking tale of the fox and the hound. Be sure to ask for some tissues in your stockings this year. But before then, we'll have a little bonus for you, a festive treat to bring you some Christmas cheer while you're in the middle of a turkey dinner coma. So there we go, a bonus episode and more Dark Age Oddness is on the way soon. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll hook you up for a flight with our good pal Orville wherever you want to go. It's on us and it's on him. Check us out on Instagram. We post episode notes on our Instagram page with Sam's pics of the most interesting images from the films. 
That's at Disneyversity. You can follow us on Twitter as well. Uh, if you follow us, leave us a review, look at any of our posts, that would be the ultimate Disneyversity Christmas present for us. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Oh man, I think we should call up Orville, call up Evan Rude, get Luke involved, and hit the moonshine, Sam. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs, and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram, and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.